When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everyone and welcome to another episode of On The Turnbuckle here on mypodcasthouse.com or whatever you're listening to us on. Thank you so much for joining us. The music of Crackerjack bringing us into the show. Was that Crackerjack's music? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't listened to the show yet, Tony. Oh, it's not okay. Thursday. Well, I, I hope, hope it, it was <laughs> because we're interviewing Crackerjack shortly. So I hope that was his music that I played. <laughs> Just what's that one song by Uncle Cracker? I'm assuming you're going to play that. Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, Welshie Lyle, g'day, boys. Very good day, Tony. How are you? How have I been? I've been okay in these tough and trying times, these, in, these unprecedented well, times. Well, for those who don't know, we're in Victoria and we're all locked in our houses. Yes. And it could get worse in the next few days. <laughs> We will be totally locked in. We all wear masks as of Thursday. Yeah, that's true. Anyone thought about wearing a Ray Mysterio mask? (laughs) The problem is that the mouth's open on a Ray Mysterio mask, Tony. Yeah. Well, yeah, but hang on. Hang on. The Premier said, all I've got to do is wear a mask. Yeah. So if I wear a wrestling mask and the cops charge me 200 bucks, I'm going to be spewing. Uh, Why don't you go and join the no consent page? <laughs> Ray Mysterio's mask doesn't even protect his eyes, let alone his mouth. Oh, we'll talk about that later on, I'm sure. <laughs> is that in the second segment? Oh no, no, yeah, yeah. last week's last week's episode. Ah, uh, yeah, two weeks ago, because last week we decided to have a week off, and it's showing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tosh Greenslade on. Yes, that's right. Uh, the comedian. Tosh Greenslade. What a lovely bloke he was. I can't yeah, even well, remember the interview. It was that long ago. I, um, I have pre-ordered his book. Oh, have you? It's not being advertised at all at the minute. So I think we oh, should I haven't be seen it anywhere a little. No, so We're not allowed to advertise it, are we? Well, as I said, he should have mentioned it on the show because I yeah. would have uh, tweeted about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think oh. we did. I'm not sure. Hopefully someone goes back and listens. And so, Tony, not. Yeah. this week's guest, is a, uh, you've been saying he's a good friend of yours. He is a great friend of mine. And, I, and I'll prove it to you. You guys don't think he knows my name. But I'm going to prove it to you that he does. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome on to On the Turnbuckle for a second time. And I'm going to quote off what it says in his little box here on Zoom. Australian wrestling legend... Cracker Jack. Crackers, how are you, old mate? Hello, Thomas. Thank you for having me. 
Tony. Yeah, did he call you Thomas? <laughs> I, I've met so many commentators over the years that, you know, unless you saved my life three to five times, you're just not going to make an impression. I'm sorry. I might have saved your career three or five times earlier. <laughs> well, you certainly saved a few matches for me. I remember that much. Hey, buddy. How's uh, lockdown treating you guys up there in the country? Technically, we're not locked down. So I can visit as many goat farms and apple orchards as I like, but uh, that's about the extent of what there is to do out here. So I'm still missing the capacity to come into the, the CBD and ply my craft and beat the crap out of people in wrestling training. Uh, I miss you all terribly, you fancy city folk. We miss outside, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's happening during winter, so it's not too bad. Anyone want to talk? <laughs> you have the floor. I thought you would start it, Tony. I like, did start it. By you're, out <laughs> you're out of questions already. What are the just, fans written in? Let's I'm just going to say that I did come prepared and I've actually brought a mask just in case this gets out of control. So. <laughs> <laughs> it, it won't save any of us. That mask you... doesn't cover enough of the face, I don't think. <laughs> no, it's doing a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah. But uh, these have been these have been trying times for everyone in the wrestling industry. It's probably the longest period, apart from injury, that anyone has not wrestled. Uh, how are you coping mentally with not getting into the ring? Not being <laughs> how am I coping <laughs> mentally in general? Mate, getting into the ring is the least of my concerns when it comes to my mental coping. Um, this isn't the longest gap I've had in the what, 20, 21 years I've been around this wretched business. Uh, I took a year off for um, bulging discs in my neck maybe about five years ago. And that was when I did the whole lost at sea story because I thought it would be more interesting to be lost at sea than to be all, oh, my neck hurts. Um, so I had a year off for that. Um, but also I've been retired since the end of 2017. So, you know, I'm really just taking a break from commentating at MCW and managing the mighty snuff king, my brother Gore. But, and what's uh, it been... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was say, what's it been like um, playing the manager's role for your brother? Really cool. Um, it's, uh, you know, you, you end up being part of a, a select group within history when you get to sort of, you know, work with your siblings or with family members in wrestling. Like, you know, not a lot of us get to do it because usually what happens is someone in the family gets involved in wrestling and everyone else in the family gets fuck that and no one else follows you in but um because both of my brothers and my uh, sister are idiots they all followed me into the business so um you know i teamed with my brother logan for several years about 10 years ago as the bastard brothers uh my sister crackerjill is obviously a celebrated female wrestler in her own right and uh yeah brother gore started wrestling a little over a year ago and i was watching him sort of um shit kicking on the indies and i'm like gore you're a 30-year-old man. You're a, a former cage-fighting champion. We can't be pissing around here. And so, basically, I came in to manage his career. And the, the manager's a shoot, uh, to be honest. So, I'm like, I, I manage him in the conventional sense, but I also make sure he doesn't double book himself, doesn't assault the wrong person and get banned from the promotion, uh, all that sort of stuff. It's, um, it's a full-time job in its own right, and I shudder to think what he's getting up to outside of my um, responsible duty of care during the lockdown. When uh, when I was sort of a big name in the radio industry, I had to get a manager <laughs> so I could stop handling myself. <laughs> yeah, I used to sleep in a straitjacket for the same purpose. It didn't stop. 
I've now, lost when, Tony. When, when the virus first uh, came to the the forefront, you were well out in front of everyone else with a hazmat suit and various different places. Why, why were you ahead of the game compared to, well, the rest of Australia? Because despite being a middle-aged man, I still have the, um, the sense of goings-on and trendings of a young, cool guy. So I was aware on Reddit when everyone's talking about this uh, exciting virus coming out of Wuhan, uh, coming out of Christmas. And I was like, oh, this is the one that's going to come. Ebola never got here, but this will be the one that gets here in spring and summer. So I was sort of preemptively prepared and getting a bit sketchy about things throughout February as I'm watching the rest of the world botch the handling of it. I'm like, well, I don't have any faith in our glorious leader for doing better. Um, so, you know, that meant that when I went to manage Brother Gore at Supernova, I thought, man, 17,000 nerds, that's no way these guys are washing their hands after they go to the toilet at the best of times. I'd better suit up. And so I wore a hazmat suit. And it was kind of cool because there were maybe like two other people at the at the convention and it's a pop culture convention. So you've got some, a sense of deniability if people think that you're overreacting and acting like a crazy person because people come up and be like, is it a costume? And I'd be like, well, if nothing happens with the virus, then yes, it's a costume. But if you and your loved ones are dead in six weeks, this is a shoot and I planned on this. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so I, I sort of got in on that and then, um, yeah, everything, it was the cancellation show and then just shows all just shut down. Um, and here we are. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely something that I never thought I'd experience in our time. Um, and seeing the reactions from people. I mean, not all Australian wrestlers seem to to be to believe that the COVID's a real thing, which has been interesting. <laughs> yes, yes, it's um, it's been a, a little polarizing for people. I mean, you know, a lot of wrestlers don't take instruction well at the best of times, which has you know made my work over the years as an agent and booker hard. So if you can't even get someone to, you know, hit their cues and finish a match the way you want them to for their pay, what are the odds of getting them to stay home or wear a mask when they go out? Like it's, um, you know, some people don't like following instructions. Some people don't like being told to do what to do. And some people don't like taking their medicine. So it's kind of divided people. I mean, me, I reckon it's a thing. I think the virus is real. I don't have it or know anyone who has it, but I think it's uh, probably worth hunkering down and avoiding. And the the academy um, where you have a where you have play a big role has been um, taking a lot of its classes online. How's that been? Uh, it's been good. I mean, again, living a few hours away from the city, um, it kind of worked in my favour anyway because I'd usually be driving down, run the promo class at the old um, NCW academy in Thomastown, and then drive home. And so I'd be on the Myash freeway at like one in the morning, bleary eyed and sliding all over the road and stuff like that and almost died a few times. So the, the move online was kind of fine for me, at least in terms of teaching promo and character. Like you lose something in the face-to-face, -face, particularly with group classes. And, you know, in terms of teaching, um, you know, like post-match segments, like beatdowns and, and sort of storytelling live devices, you can't really block through those. But on the other hand, you know, in teaching via Zoom, I'm able to sort of lean heavier into, you know, video promo related lessons. So I do a lot of uh, critiquing of frame and shot composition during Zoom classes. Uh, but I think much like everyone, um, we're all kind of hitting the wall of, oh, it's staring at the faces of assholes on a screen. 
as in lieu of actual social contact. So, you know, it brings some benefits, it has some flaws. Is there a Zoom yeah. dress code of conduct that you have? Do you wear pants? Uh, I do. Um, you know, obviously don't have to because I'm generally framed from yeah. the waist up, but uh, you know, you never know what's going to happen. The camera can always. Uh, I have like a fancy tripod on this one, so it's a quickie stage. Oh, nice. But yeah. it's um, not impossible that it would fall down and reveal my junk. And, um, you know, MCW Academy is uh, you know, very diligent. I'm pretty sure I signed a whole bunch of forms when I came in saying that I'd wear pants at all times and stuff like that. Like, they're real strict on that sort of stuff. So, so I can't afford to lose my job. My Australian Legends contract won't protect me if I'm um, breaking the rules, the Zoom rules and stuff. Uh, I do occasionally have cats in the background humping inanimate objects, so that probably breaks the rules. Yeah. But it's animals, right? It's, it's fine. Well, well, she's dog normally comes on the podcast mid-show most weeks. So. <laughs> I think he just was. Well, I hope you clean up after. <laughs> I'm just sort of looking at all three squares. I'm not sure who's going to take the lead. Lyle refuses to ask questions. I don't understand. Come on, Lyle. I've already asked my standard one question. I'm logging off. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Getting up to the listener questions now. Just bringing them up. (laughs) My God, this ran out so quickly. How are you all doing? I mean, like, uh, like between the lack of wrestling and like, well, the lack of wrestling in general, has it sort of stimmied your capacity to assemble an engaging and exciting show? Not today, obviously, this is magnificent television. But uh, in general, is it like you're kind of covering an industry that with one or two exceptions really isn't doing anything? Yeah, it's um, been challenging. I mean, one of the other challenges has obviously been who to get recently, um, Mm. which um, we'll ask you about later. But um, yeah, for us, it's been a case of how do we make the show entertaining? You can't talk about current wrestling. So we've done a lot of talking to people who've written books about wrestling or um, people who are celebrities in their own right but are wrestling fans, that sort of thing, just to sort of freshen it up till there's something to actually talk about. Yeah. It's, you see people go, oh, there's no new wrestling except the, the sort of the crowdless stuff that's coming out of um, WWE. But I'm like, this, like right up until the pandemic hit, there were more hours of wrestling being produced across the earth than you could watch if all you did every day was watch four screens of wrestling 24-7. So it's not like we're going to run out of wrestling. Um, so I think sort of, uh, I don't know, like how do you guys feel about the no crowd gimmick? Is that doing it for you or is it weird? No, it did, so, it, I don't think it bothered us at the start. Initially, I think we thought it was, you know, a, a nice sort of gimmick. It was okay. But I think as it went on, it really started to get quite boring. And yeah. that's, isn't that the corona experience in general? Like if you're in a place where, you know, they're not piling bodies up on the street and so you're sort of, you don't connect too closely with the tragedy of it unless you personally know someone who's sick. It's just this weird inconvenience. And I think everyone was like, ah, no crowds for a while. That's okay. Cancel shows, no training for a couple of months. But as it becomes increasingly open-ended, people's patience yeah. is diminishing rapidly. Um, I haven't watched a whole heap of the crowdless wrestling. I watched WrestleMania and my big takeaway was, um, you know, when you're watching wrestling on TV, the crowd kind of serves as your surrogate. 
Like they respond on your behalf in a capacity that the performers can actually hear and the performers address them directly. And my big takeaway watching WrestleMania was that with the removal of the crowd, they didn't change the way they interacted with the cameras. And as a result, because they're still doing the thing where they're cutting promos to empty chairs and doing that weird thing where they sort of promo oblique to the camera, you kind of feel as a fan watching from home left out of the experience. Like it's not the inclusive thing it used to be because you no longer have a surrogate in the building and they don't even look at you when they're talking. And the other takeaway for me that I found it really exposed was how many people have obviously come through the system only knowing WWE and being sort of unsure as to how to own the room with their voice when they can be heard. Um, whereas sort of non-developmental talents, like I watched Sami Zayn versus uh, Daniel Bryan and they were fine. Like it got to the point where I switched over to watching the show in Portuguese just because I wanted Michael Cole to shut the fuck up so I could hear what they were saying in the ring. And the Portuguese commentary was less intrusive, even though you could still hear him live in the room. But because <laughs> Sami Zayn and uh, Daniel Bryan have come up through the grassroots thing, they've worked in front of seven people, 10 people before. I wrestled Sami Zayn in Adelaide in front of seven people. I know he's worked in front of no one before. <laughs> so you could see how they were prepared to just alter the craft to make it engaging in this new weird circumstance, whereas other people, I think, haven't done it as well. well I suppose it's an interesting point you, you bring up. There's a lot of businesses, there's a lot of sports that will change the way they do things due to what they've learned in the last six to eight months of COVID and the way that things have, have just organically changed through processes and, and the like. Wrestling, though, is not a sport or not a, a profession that can change anything really because at the end of the day wrestling is just all about jumping in a ring fighting and having that crowd reaction apart from that there's not much more that can change yes um and i know that you know um joey Janela and a couple of other guys did like a, a social distancing match where they were like two meters apart and stuff and hitting moves separately but i mean it's obviously that's not going to replace contact wrestling it was like a, a funny satirical way to approach the situation but it doesn't feel the same thing wrestlers need to be able to wrestle for it to work um and i think while i'm you know not so traditional that i'm not open to things like the boneyard match and these sort of high concept they keep calling them cinematic or spielbergian and i'm like man you ain't seen spielberg for a while he's, he's better than this you know <laughs> it's um it's uh, but you know vince aims low and broad so he's not going to go spielberg if anything he's going to go michael bay um but uh <laughs> like i almost think particularly with the boneyard match that they took it far enough from wrestling that the bits of wrestling they kept almost held them back like, I think if you might as well go all the way and do a truly transformative work and just make it like film. Because what was totally weird was watching what felt like a fight scene in a TV show, but with the sort of the real-time selling that made the whole experience really sluggish. Like, you just, you know, it's even the fight scene from They Live between Piper and Keith David. Like, they don't sell in real time for 15, 20 minutes. And I just think if you're going to take it that far, you know, move beyond wrestling altogether and just stage fight scenes, but make them truly cinematic with cuts and things like that and, and take advantage of the talents you have and, and go all the way with it. Because I think the half measure doesn't land as well. That said, I haven't seen anything that AAW has been doing because I'm a terrible fan in my own right. So maybe they've got the formula better. 
Well, they um, sort of had that. They had that chance, didn't they, on Monday with the uh, Broad Strowman and Daniel Bryant match. They could have taken that really. Bray Wyatt, Tony. Ray, sorry, Bray Wyatt. What did I say? Yeah. Daniel Bryant. Uh, sorry, no. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, that's because he's fought him so often that I think they're the same person. They all blend together, yeah. Uh, but they could have taken that right to the edge as, as far as they wanted to because it was that no rules, extreme type thing. But they still probably didn't go as far as they could have. Yeah, I, I didn't see that one, but I did see the Firefly Funhouse match. And you couldn't take that further. It's um, <laughs> no, at least like it's sort of it benefited from kind of divorcing itself from wrestling, and it felt more like a, a sort of a Lynchian dream sequence than a wrestling match. And I think, in some ways, at least, like it wasn't a successful wrestling match, but it kind of felt like a successful work. And I think you know, there's a certain like, I think wrestling is an amazing art form. Like, I think it's up there with music for its capacity to be diverse and to sort of express different ideas and evoke different emotions. But at a certain point, you bump up to the limitations of what pro wrestling can do as an art form. Like, you can bring in weighty themes of life and death and hopes and despair and stuff like that. But it kind of still ultimately has to boil down to two men in their underpants trying to hold each other down for three seconds. Like that's just, it, it, at some point it becomes wrestling. And I think some of this high concept stuff, you know, all bits are kind of off now anyway. Go all the way with it. Like it's, it, it's not wrestling in the traditional sense anyway. So the, the trappings of wrestling they are trying to hold on to are more limiting than they are advantageous at this stage. Yeah. Now, they're obviously, they're trying things with the cinematic matches. But where I think they haven't tried enough, and um, I'd be interested in what your thoughts are, is changing the feel of the show where why have a guy cut a promo in the ring? Why have a guy cut a promo on the entranceway when you've got no crowd? So you might as well, you know, really do that stuff well and in a new way, find a new way of storytelling and do it backstage in front of a green screen or in front of um, a back, different backdrop go to different locations. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much travel is restricted in the States at the moment, which may make it inconvenient to go to cool looking places. I like the ring as a location. I think it's, you know, it's a good stage to perform on. It looks good. It's more, it's more who they're delivering the promo to. And I think that maybe is something that's kind of being lost or not being altered enough to accommodate the new world we find ourselves in. Like, come out to the ring and do a promo, sure, but who are they talking to? They're obviously not addressing the crowd in attendance. I guess if you're addressing your opponent, you would probably deliver it down the camera because that's how they're going to see it unless their opponent is in the space. If they're addressing the fans, if they're talking to us, God, heaven help that they actually address the people who watch, then again, you kind of need to deliver it down the camera. And that's kind of our only way to feel involved in what's happening you know, beyond some sort of gimmicky social media interaction or something. So, yeah, I think, I think not delivering promos down the barrel, I think, is probably keeping us distant from what's happening, and that's kind of hurting investment in the product. Um, as, as the yeah. promo king crackers... Yes. Uh, there was probably a time 20 or 30 years ago where the, the majority of wrestling fans probably thought that the Americans were the best at cutting promos especially WWF at the time. Has that changed? 
do we look at different places now as to find our great promo cutters? We're, we're not necessarily looking at the major uh, promotions anymore? Um, well, I mean, I think 20 or 30 years ago, as a mainstream fan, you'd be, especially 30 years ago, you'd be hard-pressed to access other wrestling. Yeah. Like, when I became a fan in 92, it wasn't on TV. You could get the WWF videos on a three-month delay from the video store. The magazines were a few months behind, and through the magazines, maybe with sort of the, the after mags, you could be aware of WCW. But there was sort of no way of accessing the indies unless you knew a tape trader, and I didn't meet one until I got involved in the business in 2000. And that kind of opened me up to seeing things like, um, you know, ECW and other indie stuff and just older stuff that's no longer currently part of the product. Because, I mean, the WWE traditionally back then didn't look outside its own brand and it didn't look backwards. It didn't sort of have that big nostalgia movement until probably about 2003. Um, so you just wouldn't have access to promos of another kind. I think the internet has kind of altered a wrestler's interaction with the audience in that traditionally your only means to access your fan base as a wrestler would be through the promotion you worked and so the promotion was like the hub and it would either be you know back in the day you'd be sending videos off to you know play your promo with their local regional television to sort of hype it and then uh, at a later point or in the australian model you would just go and work for them but and that would be how you would access audiences but now through social media the wrestlers can kind of be their own hubs and you can talk to your fans directly. And so that's kind of changed everything uh, in terms of putting power back into the wrestlers' hands to not only communicate with their fans directly, but also to do it with a degree of independence. Like some people cut promos, like, you know, a promotion will say, do a promo for the ballroom role. We're going to put it online on our socials to plug the show. And they may have to get a cameraman from NCW to do it for them. But other people like myself, I've always had my own crew, my own film access, and I've been able to do it myself. So wrestlers have been able to control their own voice much more as freelancers than they used to be able to. And so that's when you get guys like Warhorse and Danhausen who might otherwise have been, you know, curated into something that wasn't themselves. They have complete control over their own voice until it gets so big that they get signed and then they become a slave to the machine like everyone else. Did that answer your question? Yeah, no, dude. Yeah, yeah. yeah excellent. <laughs> so, who, so yeah. who was who was your who was your promo mentor? Was there someone that you modelled your initial self on? Uh, locally, no one in particular. When I was coming in, um, in terms of local characters that you could kind of emulate, um, there was a guy called Gene Gatto who was an excellent heel commentator and you know general villain character who I always really liked because he'd get great heat but then he'd transfer it onto the wrestler because he'd never be resolving the feud himself. Um, and there were a few people of my generation, but not a lot of, um, I'm probably slandering someone who's amazing who I've forgotten, but there weren't a lot of great promo guys that I can remember. A big part of that's probably because, you know, so much of Australian wrestling history is rooted in guys for whom English wasn't necessarily their first language either. And so that would probably yeah. be a bit of a barrier to some great promos, uh, not in terms of feeling, just in terms of eloquence. Uh, my guys watching on TV who I loved, um, Piper was probably the first guy who I really uh, loved the way he conducted himself with his promos. Like he sort of, he had the crazy man thing going on. But what I loved about Piper is he wouldn't pander. Whether he whether was a heel or a face, it was more about how his character felt and less about I am trying to get you to boo or cheer. 
he would just be himself and be real in the moment as if it was real and then the audience would follow. So I loved him, I loved Savage, and then as I was becoming a wrestler, I sort of um, got real into Mick Foley, which seems obvious from the hardcore, but really more in terms of his promos and storytelling. And that's the um, the other part of your role at MCW Academy is the is character work, not just promo. Um, yes. how, if, how important is it at the moment with no wrestling on, um, how important it is for guys to look at their character and actually work out what they want to be in the next 12 months? Pretty huge. Uh, I mean, there's not a lot else you can do. Like, you can try to stay fit and stay active. And I think when this sort of lockdown began, everyone kind of expected it to be this sort of amazing renaissance of home-created art and stuff. Like, oh, I'm going to write my novel and I'm going to do my web series and I'm going to do 20 episodes of Art TV. And instead, everyone's just kind of stayed home and gone, fuck! <laughs> <laughs> You know, everything kind of play out from, uh, I mean, our whole country was on fire like five months ago and it's going to be on fire again in about three months. So we've sort of gone fires, pandemic, oh my God, police brutality for wrestling centric people. Then there's, you know, speaking out and everything attached to that. Um, so I think the idea that everyone was going to be immensely creative at home was very optimistic. Instead, I think people are sort of using a lion's share of their mental faculties just to sort of keep despair at bay. Um, but I think working on your craft is a good way to sort of keep your shit together in these times. So, you know, staying in shape and working on your characters, really important. So that's sort of a big part of what I focus on. There's, you know, the promos, but then there's also who is it who's cutting the promo and why should anyone care about it? And that's the thing about character... Um, the other thing about character that um, I feel sometimes gets lost from people who watch a lot of wrestling is it's really important to be watching other forms of entertainment and other art forms to try and, and get the psychology from, you know, a serial killer on TV or from um, any of those other comedy characters or sporting greats or whatever, whatever floats your boat to use that to create something unique. Absolutely. It's a big part of my teaching. So, you know, wrestling's got a, a real bad habit of sort of cannibalizing itself. Um, and it sort of, it does really well when it pulls from other media. And sometimes it does it well, and sometimes it's just lip service, but it just works. Um, I look at Sting's Crow gimmick. Like it just, it's just, he's dressed like the crow because he's also screwed of vengeance. Like it's shamefully derivative, but it didn't matter. It was the right thing. Um, Scott Hall's Scarface character when he started doing Razor Ramon. I think wrestling does really well when it looks outside, but what often happens is a lot of people who get into wrestling don't necessarily, well, some people who get into wrestling don't necessarily consume broader media, so all their influence is wrestling. And so it just becomes, you know, like a, it's a bit like a parody of a parody. Uh, and what it's like is it's like using the same mold over and over again, and the details smooth over, and the nuances are lost, and you just end up with like a copy of a copy. and um, it loses its fidelity as a, a consequence. Um, and I just think, uh, especially as wrestling moves into sort of doing more with the out of the ring storytelling side of things, we are better served to look at people who do it better than wrestling and steal their shit. And so I do a lot of, um, you know, there's so much quality serialized television produced these days. And so I'll direct students to, you know, go watch Oz 
it's a harrowing experience. HBO is on, not the man from. Um, <laughs> but it's really good because it's it's an ensemble cast. There's like it's a lot. It's probably the closest to a wrestling show that I can think of because you've got an ensemble cast. There's background characters who kind of get elevated and drop back down. There's shenanigans. There's you know backstabbing. There's politicking and stuff like that. The stakes are high. Um, it's very masculine, which sort of ties a lot into men's wrestling. Um, it's deeply homoerotic, so that's across the board pro wrestling there. Um, and you know, and there's so many shows like that. Um, and you can sort of just point to people. Uh, I do a lot of pointing to people at film as well. And I think you're absolutely right. It's, you know, take from art, take from politics, take from your own experience. Do what any other performer has to do. Like no actor just goes, well, I'm in Shakespeare, so I'm only gonna learn what Shakespeare. That's sort of, you wanna bring experiences from the world into your performance, your own experience, but also other media so that you know, just as much as pro wrestling needs fresh, fresh blood in terms of performance, it needs fresh blood in terms of creativity and ideas. You can only get that from looking outside and wrestling. I can't wait till one of the Academy kids come out dressed as a witch going, I'm melting, I'm melting. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I booked a show that was all um, like a Grand Dame Guignol and I had a witch. <laughs> well, I had the, the witch from Wizard of Oz versus the witch from uh, Snow White. So uh, they hit each other with a mirror and it exploded everywhere with real glass. I didn't think nice. <laughs> <laughs> now, now everyone knows the... you're... Um, oh. is now, there everyone Academy... knows... Sorry, Lyle, I'll get shocked when you're going to ask a question. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I, 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 have one do I have a second one and final. Um, um, cool. I've got a follow-up question, so I think I should okay. ask first. Do you oh, okay, on, on, cool. Is there anyone at the, at the Academy, um, any of the young young wrestlers of the academy who really get character and you're really impressed with how much they are um going to implement that you think when they get in front of the live audiences yeah absolutely there's some really good kids I mean, I've, I've been sort of like i've been teaching on and off for about 15 years but my own uh curriculum for promo class is something i've been developing uh since i was off in my neck injury about five years ago so that's, I've been working a lot to sort of refine this, my system. This is my version of standard last method, but for professional play fighting. Uh, and there are some really good talents in there. I mean, in terms of what you can do with your character, you can only do so much and the rest is kind of up to the booker in a way. And they sort of, they'll dictate that. But, uh, you know, because you can be whatever character you like, but at the end of the day, you're a bit of a slave to what happens to you and what you do next in terms of what gets decided by the booker. But there are some students with some really good instincts and some bright ideas and stuff. And it's why you teach, you know, because the next generation is always more exciting. They're, they're hungry for it. They're not jaded. And that sort of revitalizes them as well. So, uh, yeah, like it was the same when I was teaching at Vicious Pursuit. I used to run my promo class there and I had some great students who've now, in the last couple of years, come through and started getting work. And I think we've only had a couple of graduates from the academy and then the world came to an end. Uh, but there's some really nice developing talent that will hopefully sort of get their chance to get in front of an audience. And, you know, that's the next step. You can only train so much. At the end of the day, it's academic. You've got to take that shit out into the field and see what an actual audience thinks and then respond to that. Lyle. Everyone knows how creative you are. Is this time been a positive for yourself or a negative to get that creative outlet you know with you know, faster tv and stuff like that you know um, you still got that outlet uh, i thought i'd do more than i have 
Um, I produce two episodes of Basket TV. Uh, they're on my YouTube, forward slash Crackerjack. Check it out. I've got like 300 subscribers. It's, it's so embarrassing to kill myself. But uh, there's like 100 videos on there. It's going to be... Um, it's going to be like my pyramid when I'm gone. I'll just be all these videos. <laughs> but uh, I only did two episodes. And then it just, you know, again, it feels so open-ended that I think a lot of people who thought they'd be churning out content, it's just sort of divorced as we are from any idea of where we're going to end up or when things are going to come back. It's kind of hard to time anything to land. And I mean, I was still bringing myself slowly out of retirement when this kicked off. So at the end of last year, I decided, all right, I've had my couple of years off. I reckon I'll come back to wrestling now. Um, and then by mid-year, I blew my knee out on a film set, snapped my ACL and trashed all the other ligaments and bruised all the bones. And so my midlife crisis storyline that was going to lead me up until the end of 2019 when I debuted, suddenly I'm like, Jesus, I've got a year of recovery. So it's not like I was going to be back in the ring anyway. But yeah, I don't know. I just, it was hard to keep churning out Barca TV with kind of no sense of what the industry was going to be like or when I'd be coming back in a real sense. So I've kind of put that on hold. Um, I do a show with my partner called Social Distancing, where we basically watch the past through the, uh, the week's information of what the hell is going on in the world. Um, it's basically the news. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, other than that, teaching sort of been taking a lion's share of my job and I'm trying to sort of um, funnel myself into non performancey artwork as well just to sort of keep that side active so no it's uh, I, I again i thought this would be all i'm going to be working on my novel and instead i'll just like everyone else in the planet i'll just curl up on a little ball and be like oh everything's terrible maybe i'll check twitter and, oh, and stuff so, but, you know, um which is you know that, that experience is not unique to me i think uh, creatives the world over um you know we had gal gadot round everyone up to sing imagine and I think after that, everyone went, no more art in lockdown. That was the worst. Everyone just stay home and do push-ups. That's fine. I mentioned before that uh, wrestling was probably one of the few things that wouldn't change. Having said that, there's probably the need for some change in wrestling after what's come out in the last three to four months. And we've had a lot of uh, listener questions. And uh, I refer to Andy Coyne's question on our Facebook page, in your opinion, Crackers, how do we move on from the recent hit wrestling has taken from the hashtag speaking out movement? And are there small changes that need to be made or some sort of significant shift? Your opinion? Oh, yeah. Thank you, MCW commentator Lord Andy Coyne, for getting me to make a public statement about this while you remain quiet. Thanks, mate. <laughs> because he's afraid to. Um, well, like I think... Um, you know, something the movement wasn't necessarily screaming for is, you, you know what this needs? This, you know, between this and Black Lives Matter, we need more middle-aged white guys coming out and saying what they reckon on the internet. Like, it didn't feel, like, mine wasn't a voice I felt compelled to amplify. You know, I just kept doing what I've always done, which is trying just to make things better behind the scenes, which has sort of been what I've tried to do for a, a decade now. Um, it's been pretty horrible for everyone. Um, and, you know, and disappointing and confronting. And I think, um, you know, I don't adhere to some of the older traditions of wrestling in terms of, um, you know, willfully making it a hard business, uh, punishing business, um, uh, something that's sort of, like, I believe in tradition and respect, but I don't believe in, you know, in 
abusing power to give a sense of gatekeeping or any of that shit. It, it's all awful. And, and it's not something I've condoned ever. And I think wrestling has to be safe for the people who take part in it and for the people who pay to watch. There's, there's no workaround for that. It has to be made safe. And, you know, if something like this has come out and it's going to shake some of the, the power brokers in the industry to make these changes or create new power brokers, it is a good thing because people need to feel safe. Um, and I think it's, it's really made for a, a challenge for a lot of promotions because, you know, from outside of wrestling, people probably think that a lot of these promotions are big, shiny professional organizations with HR departments and stuff like that, like the WWE. And a lot of them aren't. You know, most wrestling promotions start with one shithead who's angry at not being booked the way he wants at the show he is on. And so he's like, I'll start my own show. And he starts his own show. And he gets like 20 people to work for him on the cheap. Um, I'm saying him just because historically, usually it is. It doesn't have to be a guy, obviously. Um, and then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's suddenly like, oh, shit, I've got like, I've been running for five years and I'm drawing hundreds of people and I've got all these people working for me. And, you know, it gets to the point where it's, it becomes unmanageable and, um, you know, it can be quite hard to sort of run it like a company when it just started off as a thing you were doing on the weekend. But I think it's, uh, you know, wrestling promotions have to be run like companies and they need to have the same framework of safety and accountability that a proper company does because you're responsible for the people who work for you. Um, has it come to a time where a wrestling code of conduct now needs to be signed by the performers? And um, Like, there is already one of those at the academy. Um, i got to say, the paperwork, when I came on as a teacher at the MCW Academy, they, uh, they're very thorough. Like, you know, I, I, I filled out fewer forms when I went to have my knee surgery. Uh, they're really diligent there. Promotions themselves, yeah. I mean, look, it's one of those things where, you know, Obviously, in an ideal world, you shouldn't have to sign a form saying you're not going to sexually assault someone. Like, it shouldn't be a requirement. Yeah. But apparently, it is. So, this is what we're doing now. So, you know, I welcome all of that. Again, anything we can do to make it safer for people. Um, I don't know how different this would have played out if there actually were shows running. It's sort of like the Australian scene and the UK scene are all kind of on hold for coronavirus. Um, so I don't know where the shows, you know, would have stopped because of the speaking out movement. I've certainly seen some people saying, you know, don't even think about coming back and running the show until this is fixed. And in response to that, while I respect the sentiment, I think it's very easy to see what's happening and from within a wrestling bubble to think it's a wrestling thing. And I think there are probably some qualities about wrestling in its weird indirect intersection between fantasy and reality that maybe make issues like this worse. But I think it's probably more reflective of the world in general. Like we've done the Me Too movement through uh, you know, the film and television industry uh, right now concurrently speaking out. Something very similar is happening in the video games industry. And a lot of big publishers are finding out that you know, between crushing their employees to death with, uh, you know, deadline crunch. There's also been all sorts of abuse there. I think the issues that come out through speaking out are indicative of issues with the world in general. And we, can, we have to do whatever we can 
to make wrestling better, but wrestling does not exist in a bubble outside of society. And until we fix broader issues of inequality, power abuse, colonial patriarchy, all the shit that basically makes life really unpleasant for like half the people on earth, it can only go so far into wrestling. So I don't think that no shows till it's all fixed is necessarily a reasonable proposition because as long as this is a problem in the world, it will never be fixed. It's going to be an issue of constant diligence forever. And we extend that through the world. And I think in the meantime, Jesus, if there was ever a time that people need art, it's now. And this isn't a license to, that shows should just start off without getting their shit in order first. But I think shows need to come back, like all art needs to come back. Like this shit's happening in the music industry, but what am I gonna do, go around slapping people's guitars out of their hands? No, not until um, Kesha wins her lawsuit against her abusive manager. Like it's just, it's not viable. Art needs to exist. Otherwise, we're just gonna go crazy in um, isolation. But the work has to be done to make people safe. With some of the smaller promotions who are that, you know, one guy wearing a multitude of hats and trying yeah, to keep of... your shit together. Is there, do you think there, there should be, um, or there could be a capacity for, for those sort of guys to reach out to the larger companies and lend some of their HR, um, not so much, just, just some of their knowledge on HR and some of their processes to make it easier to implement across the board? Um, this is sort of getting out of my wheelhouse a little. Uh, I would like to say if, um, and like for the, just to be clear, I don't like, despite what people may think, I don't hold any management positions at any promotions in the country at the moment. Uh, as an Australian wrestling legend, I meddle a lot and I try to exert influence, but I'm not in the inner circle in any promotions. So I'm not familiar with what steps are being taken now and I won't know what procedures are in place at the companies I work for until you know they implement them. Um, but I would I would think that if you were a company that's got it shipped together, you know, there could be a risk of liability if you lend those processes to another company and they screw them up. It's a bit like if I've got public liability for my promotion, I'm gonna be a bit loath to say, hey, you scumbag indie guy, uh, Bush League person, perhaps you'd like to borrow my insurance because I couldn't trust them to do right by it. Um, and part of this is symptomatic of the fact that we are an unregulated collection of independent artists. And I think generally that's a good thing. I think to me, regulation probably just sounds like the government taking a fee and not actually doing anything to help us. We're better off on our own. But with us being on our own brings the onus of accountability. And it's pretty clear between, you know, here and especially in the UK, that accountability has in some cases been neglected and that needs to be rectified. Um, and look, maybe as a result, if that might make the smaller feds drop off. And if that's the case, so be it. But that's always been the risk for the smaller operators anyway. Uh, can, I, can I just throw in on this and weigh in on this and just give a thought that probably now more than ever there's never really been a time more so than now that all wrestling promotions need to get together and sort this out together you've got to have everybody on exactly the same page on this to move forward and I think that there needs to be some sort of 
the only way they could do it is to have a Zoom meeting of all the promoters and they all get together and they all say, right, yeah, moving forward, this is how we are all going to do it. And I think once that happens, the wrestling fraternity will have some sort of confidence that there is a unified front from the promoters to the seriousness of what's been put forward. And I think that everyone will be able to move forward. But until then, I think the only companies that are going to really survive in a proper promotion sense will be the larger ones that have that sort of presence and the smaller ones may struggle to do so. I think it's just a, a really good time to have a unified front from everyone on this. Uh, the unified front always seems like a good idea, but it's sort of the issue with it is the only reason why there isn't just one promotion is because individuals have their own vision for how wrestling should be run. I mean, I myself have my own vision for how wrestling should be run, but with the exception of spot shows here and there, I've never started my own full-time promotion because it's a lot of work and it's easier to just try to enact change onto other people's shows than to sort of be the boss myself. But every promotion that ever got started was started because someone thought they knew the best way to do this and they disagreed with wherever they came from and yep. how it was being done or they wanted to be their own boss. So that is not conducive to everyone then getting on the same page and compromising something that maybe they hold true for the sake of unity. And, and to be honest, it's, just, it's all like, you know, say Ringwood Championship Wrestling to make up a promotion. Like say they don't do anything. Say they just like come back like it always was. Who's going to do anything about it? Like, every wrestling promotion that exists is basically, like if it was Shebeki Championship Wrestling, you'd rent a ring, you'd rent a building, and then you'd call around the wrestlers you want, and they'd either say yes or no. And that's kind of it. Man. Whether you've got a, a safety policy in place or not, I mean, the fans, certain, you know, wrestling fans who are ethical consumers may not come to your show unless you've got a little sticker saying ethical backstage policy in place. But... You know, how many people make the effort to drink fair trade coffee? Some people won't give a shit. And they'll just come. And so, you know, it's... Um, so much of this movement has sort of been alive on Twitter. And if you're in Twitter, it feels like it's the world. Um, but it's not like Twitter's even got a huge ticker in Australia compared to other countries either. So, you know, there'd be fans who don't even know anything about any of this stuff. You know, they just go down to their local once a month and they watch some wrestling. I don't know anything about speaking out or any of this yeah. stuff going on. They may go, oh, what happened to what's-his-face and have no idea why he's been removed or anything like that. So, you know, shows can just start. There's no accountability for there. It's something that promoters have to do themselves. And then it's up to the talent as to whether they care about these policies being in place before they accept the booking in a place. Fickle. You know, it's wrestling always sort of had that discretion to act upon whether they want to or not. You know, it's the same as being a consumer. You can consume ethically, you could work ethically, or you could just work and not give a shit. Yeah. Now, since you got under our Facebook page and actually answered every question and said, we'll answer that on the show, mm -hmm. we've probably got about 30 <laughs> questions that we need to ask you from the oh, Facebook page. So we should get into it. Otherwise, it's going to be a five hour interview, boys. Sorry. Oh. That, that's it. You have, you've forgotten about all the Twitter ones as well. Like, correct. I hope someone's collated them all from all the various sources. Well, the ones we'll remember, we'll ask. <laughs> um, 
Kevin, Kevin Chiat asked, uh, what have been some of the challenges of integrating wrestling into the Australian arts culture and scene? And what practices from the wider arts sector would be good to implement into wrestling? Okay. Um, so I sort of occupy an unusual space in wrestling because I came from acting um, into wrestling. And then during my time in wrestling, I diversified some of my own practice into visual art and performance art and fine art and stuff like that. So I'm a bit of, uh, I'm Australian wrestling's resident art wanker, basically. And so I'm sort of familiar with all these scenes. And um, uh, wrestling uh, uniquely in Australia is kind of in a weird space because uh, Australia culturally loved its wrestling when it was a sport. I'm doing the quotey marks, a bit religious listening to this. Uh, and then when it became an art, it kind of suffered the kind of cultural cringe that Australian cinema and music does, in which Australians don't give a shit about it. We love our sport, we love our real athletes, especially when they're beating foreigners, but we don't care about our art until our art gets over overseas. What's that? Americans are watching Muriel's Wedding, now we're watching Muriel's Wedding. Americans are listening to Powderfinger, now we're listening to Powderfinger. It's not as bad as I make out sometimes, but it is kind of like a thing. Australians aren't huge into their own culture like they are into their own sport. And so, but wrestling as a, a craft spent so long extending the fourth wall in perpetuity through defense of kayfabe that a lot of people feel like their intelligence was insulted. And a lot of artists feel like their intelligence was insulted. And so wrestling kind of lies orphaned at the intersection of sport and art and neither world really wants anything to do with us in any serious way. So it's been quite a challenge. Uh, I've done a lot of work with um, journalist and culture critic Clem Basco to sort of broaden my work there. We took a wrestling show to Dark Mofo a couple of years ago and um, ran a show as part of their Night Mass uh, after party program called Night Massacre. For those who don't know, Dark Mofo is uh, an arts festival that's like willfully edgy and stuff like that. And so a lot of vaginas of, hanging off the roof. Uh, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, you know, they go into confrontational Im imagery. They, um, you know, court controversy and stuff like that. So it's a little less of a, a family outing compared to, say, White Knight in Melbourne or <laughs> or something like that. Like, it's, it's willfully transgressive because uh, it's all built out of the, the guy who runs it, his own art museum, this island called Mona in the centre of Tasmania is also, like, very sort of transgressive white art. Um, so it was perfect for that, but we still managed to sort of traumatise people. We had death match in the main event, an intergender match, a sort of a regular match to kind of ease people in because I'm a big fan of the first match on any card being quite educated for the audience in terms of this is what you've got to prepare yourself for for the rest of it. And that was really well received. Uh, we had like 650 people there. Someone fainted during the main event from the heinousness of the violence and stuff. Uh, so that went well, and I've done a couple of arty type things as well, but... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit, bit tricky because, again, like some people hear wrestling and they're curious. Some people hear wrestling and they think it's garbage. Most times the people forming those opinions haven't actually experienced wrestling in any real way. They've probably watched some other parody of wrestling or they're rejecting the idea of wrestling rather than the reality. So it is a bit of a hard sell. I think our industries have more that we can do with each other and we've got, Clem and I have a couple of plans for other sort of installational style art that brings the trappings of wrestling in. But like we were talking about with the, um, the cinematic type matches, 
sort of taking what's working in wrestling outside of a wrestling context. And it's a bit like what I do with my performance art as well. I take sort of like the heinous, abject body, physical violence, a death match, but I separate it from that contrived conflict context and put it in an art gallery and just see how people react to someone rolling around in light tubes without the argy-barge of a match attached to it. I <laughs> uh, got one from Facebook, Luke Shembury. He wants to know what's been your favourite venue to work in Australia? Um, Dragonfly, sure. Dragonfly. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, Dragonfly holds a very special place for me. It was the venue I had my pro debut. Um, and, you know, like, uh, just to touch a bit on speaking out again, it's uh, people who talk about how daunting locker rooms can be today. They have no idea what it was like as a skinny 20-year-old kid to walk into the backstage kitchen of the Dragonfly restaurant. And, like, the average age in the room was 40. Like, there are a bunch of 60-year-old Italian guys in their underpants smoking cigarettes in a kitchen playing cards. Um, very daunting and gruff and very, you know, of another world for want of a better euphemism. And, um, you know, for all the flaws that have been exposed in our industry in the last few months, uh, I'm still super proud at how far we've managed to drag it in a progressive, inclusive direction. Oh, and the business we hand on to the next generation will be better than the one that we inherited. And they will take it so much further. And the business they hand on to their descendants in 2030, 2040, it'll be better still. It's always, it's always moving forward. There's always work to be done, but I believe that is progress. Um, but yeah, my, I debuted, my pro debut was in uh, the Dragonfly Chinese restaurant in Tullamarine, which um, for those of you who never had the privilege of seeing wrestling in there, is this gorgeously kitschy, like it's a green lino and fake plants and fish tanks on the walls and a mirrored ceiling. And wrestling would be going on on a Friday night Thursday night would have been the Denise Drysdale variety hour and Saturday is either manpower dance review yes. or Neil Diamond impersonator. Like it was an amazing artifact of, you know, ever since the Swagman restaurant burned down in the 90s, it was the only place that Baba, I mean, Abba tribute acts could perform and stuff like that. Wrestling fit right in there. Uh, to me, it was uh, Madison Square Garden, uh, not just due to how prolific MSG was in the building, but... Uh, <laughs> It just, it had character. And I think a lot of people were sort of taking the piss when NCW ran the last ever Dragonfly show there. But for me, I was kind of, it meant a lot to me to start my career at the Dragonfly and then 15 years later, do the main event with Mad Dog and Mike Peterson um, to a, a full house. It's, um, and it was also one of those venues that had many different promotions post um, performing there. And I think, a lot of people think that fans are promotion, promotion loyal, and those that travel are promotion loyal. But a lot of the way people consume wrestling in this town is it's just your local. And a lot of these people were probably oblivious to the fact that it was a different acronym in there over the years. It was just going to Dragonfly for the wrestling, eat some black bean and <laughs> beef, go home, shit my organs out into the toilet for three days, and then come back a month later to watch the wrestlers again. So yeah, I'm very attached to the Dragonfly, um, I really do miss that venue. I think the Thornbury Theatre is a gorgeous venue. Um, I'm yet to work in PCW's purpose-built venue, but I'd be very excited to do that because I'm just I'm a big fan of bleachers and that's how they seem to, you know, the idea of designing a building for wrestling in Melbourne, I think is really cool. Uh, yeah, that'd be, um, 
three he's I want to draw attention to. A guy who I guess he's doing okay, okay for himself, Brendan Vink. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he wants to know what's your favourite 10 second title loss to him and why? I think it's ridiculous that I've managed to do that twice. Um, <laughs> definitely the first. So I was Melbourne City Wrestling Champion. There was a period in about 2013-2014 where I ascended to the main event, partly because I think I came into my own as a main event ready wrestler, but also a whole bunch of people retired or fell, died in fires. So, you know, my star came up and suddenly I was champion like three different promotions. I was simultaneously feuding with Brooksy over the Warzone title, tag champion with him at uh, OCW and forcibly married him at WrestleRock. So, you know, I was, I was everywhere at once. Um, but I was MCW champion, but at the same time, I was in a lot of trouble health-wise. Um, I had a major bulging disc in my neck that was causing me to lose feeling in my hands. Um, more in day-to-day life, but it started to affect me in wrestling. Like I had a couple of incidents where I completely, like my arm was hanging like a noodle and I had to sort of swap everything over to the other side of my body to wrestle and I became a liability. So I'm like, I got to drop this belt and I need to take some time off. Uh, and I was sort of, but the plan was always for me to drop the belt to uh, the MCW championship to Brandon Vink. His star was on ascension. He was, you know, stepping up into the main event. He was going to be the figurehead of the company going into the TMD, TMDK feud. And um, that was a uh, Chris Fresh book storyline. And he loves the 10 second honky tonk man ultimate warrior spot. And to a lesser extent, the Bret Hart Hogan Yokozuna title loss. So that was really good. Basically, I came out, powerbombed the challenger, Carlo Cannon, through the stage, and immediately lost all feeling in the left side of my body. But I had to go through to the finish of the match. So I stepped into the ring, holding the mic in my right hand while my left arm hangs like a noodle. And I'm like, I challenge anyone in the building. I'm invincible. I'm not joking. I just said I can stand up. And then Vic comes out. Uh, I, I spear him, he just catches him straight away, Jack, I'm running the chicken cup. That was a really rewarding way to go out. And it was sort of like, even if I had been physically capable of doing a match, it's one of those things where a more selfish wrestler would want to get his shit in, but it's the sort of finish that the less I do, the less competitive I am, the more satisfying that spot is. And so it served my purpose to be obliterated in that moment, to give everyone the happy moment, to make his victory so absolute. So I thought that was awesome. Second time was after I'd done a light tube death match with Pitbull Craig Cole at a Wrestle Rock. And that I wasn't so happy with. It kind of, it didn't mean anything. It didn't go anywhere. It was just a, like a cynical gag. And, um, you know, I got to roll around in glass and then hand over the belt 30 seconds later. So I would say definitely the first one. The first one was my favourite <laughs> of many losses to Brendan Vink. I'm going to kill two questions with one stone here. Corbin Parnell says that he heard in a show late last year that you were going to come back to wrestling again. And off the back of that, Josh Stevenson says, if you do come back to wrestling, is there anyone that you really want to go one-on-one with? Okay. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, again, I was planning on coming back last year. So I... I had my retirement match at the end of 2017. Uh, and I think we had a podcast shortly after that. Yeah. Where I, I came on and chatted to you guys about uh, Lucky Hendricks ending my career. And um, what I didn't know at the time of that interview is that I'd suffered a major brain injury in that match. Uh, basically where he bludgeoned my head in with the DVD player. He gave me a massive concussion and I didn't know. And I went and I drank all night and I headbanged. 
I danced. And then I went to sleep with about 20 minutes sleep the next day. And then I got up and drank a coffee and it was like a hand grenade dropped in my head. And I thought I was hung over, but basically it was massive hemorrhaging inside my brain. Uh, and I didn't know. And so in the wake of that, I went and did a couple of contracted gigs where I attacked um, Ladybeard at, at the Falls Festival and got hit in the head a bunch more. And then by about mid-February, I started having major balance issues. I started tipping over, um, losing my balance, getting real dizzy. And after an exhaustive series of tests, they're like, yeah, you've got brain damage in that match. You've broken your vestibular system, which basically means my brain, when it goes to work out which way up I am, it checks my eyes, it checks my feet. And it's like, okay, cool. Then it checks my inner ear. And when it reads that information, it's all wrong. And my body doesn't know what way up it is. So I had to do like a year of basically the same sort of rehab you do when you have a stroke and you're trying to rewire neural pathways. So I had to make myself dizzy, not fall over, realign myself and slowly acclimatize to the fact that I never know which way up I am anymore. And I did all that horrible, re it's just hours of standing on one leg and moving my head around like a moron. Um, and I was ready to come back and then I obliterated my knee. And so that sort of put off my, I'm now 10 months into recovery post-surgery and I can sort of hop and run a bit and it's getting stronger, but I'm probably a few months off from being able to get back in the ring. I don't have Seth Rollins' team of doctors. I'm like 10 years older than he is. So it, it hasn't been uh, a smooth recovery. But uh, yeah, I will be returning to the ring. And there's a whole bunch of people I want to kick the shit out of when I get there. Um, Robbie Eagles is the guy I always wanted to wrestle before I retired and it never happened. And now he's twice as famous as he used to be. So, you know. It's much better for my career to wrestle him now than it would have been years ago. I'd love to wrestle him. There's a whole bunch of talents who've come along in the gap while I've been away. I'd love to get my hands on Jet Ruka. Um, there's some interstate guys I'd like to wrestle. Um, you know, uh, I'd love to get in and beat the shit out of those kids at the academy to teach them a lesson for not coming to promo class. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's lots of people. Uh, and of course, I'm very keen to team up with my brother, the mighty snuff king, Gore, and uh, be the new bastard brothers and uh, kick the hell out of everyone, especially any other brother teams in the country, which I think would be the Preston Kindred and uh, the Natural Classics, Tone and Stevie Philippe. I would love to get in there and have Brother Gore and I do a, a sibling tag match. I always think that sort of thing is cool. So yeah, they're definitely matches that are on the cards. And... and uh, Um, well, I probably want to avoid major shots to the head, but then, you know, I always should be. That's, <laughs> that's part of wrestling defensively. I'm trying to win, right? I shouldn't hit me in the head. Um, it's an endless series of adjustments. Like, my plan, even when I retired, the plan to take a contract for us four times a year. Everyone has to sell to me. No one's allowed to hit me too hard because I'm fragile and special. Um, but then all these extra injuries have kind of prolonged that. My end goal is to basically wrestle until I die. So I knew that sooner or later, I'd be a seven-year-old man wrestling like Abdullah the Butcher or the original Sheik, hopefully without hepatitis, walking around in my stabbing people. <laughs> you know, like Mr. Poker, the legend of Japanese deathmatch, you never knew when to retire. Terry Funk, all those sort of guys. So really all I want to do is put on being as incapable as that for as long as possible. So I suspect I'll need to wrestle cleverer when I come back. Uh, but that was always the plan anyway. And, you know, the other thing is, 
I'm a guy who was a fan in the 90s, who started wrestling at the turn of the century. So I think something I'm very keen to do would be to update my repertoire. I'm not interested in wrestling, you know, uh, slavishly to the current trends. I'd always like to be sort of a hodgepodge of different eras, but there's certainly, certainly some elements of modern wrestling that I would like to sort of insert into my repertoire just to, you know, remain contemporary and to be able to hang with the next generation. Because I think that's really important. I never, you know, I never want to be in a position where someone sees their wrestling me and is like, oh, crackage, he sucks. Um, so I always want to be able to deliver in that capacity. That to me, to deliver to the people I work with and the people who pay to watch is more important to me than any other. Canadian destroyers are coming up in your future? Um, I have done at least one in the past. <laughs> uh, sure, yeah, if it works, <laughs> if it works, it works. Um, yeah, yeah, who, who knows? Who knows? Look, we're all going to be in lockdown. Like, I'll be 50 by the time I'm ever allowed to get back into the ring at this rate anyway, after, you know, the coronavirus lockdown, the coming climate wars, you know, who knows what things are going to be like at Mad Max Professional Wrestling in 2045. Are you still seeing Lover Boy's mum? Occasionally. <laughs> well, he's in lockdown now, so I'm not allowed to visit. It's, I really only like to visit when he wasn't there. Uh, but she has been um, Skyping with me to teach me how to make uh, Mrs. Hendricks fabulous chili. And I can't get the spices quite right, but it's getting there. That's a work in progress. She is a lovely woman and a saint, yeah. and uh, she deserves a better son. Lockie <laughs> did tell me that, that you were a big fan of that chili. I really am. It's a really am. It drives me mad trying to get the spices right, but I'll get there eventually. <laughs> Jay Stephen wants to know what your top five whiskeys are. Um, I am disgracefully ill-informed. If you really want to talk <laughs> to Sir Guy on the local scene about whiskey, you've got to talk to Mad Dog McRae, who's in his years of nipping over to Japan to uh, beat the hell out of people and bleed everywhere. He's accumulated an amazing collection of whiskey. And um, one of my many incomplete projects is actually a program called uh, Creatures of Leisure, where he and I sit in the bathtub with top hats, sampling fancy whiskey, and sold it to reader issues. <laughs> like an agony art column. He's like, and this is a Yamazaki. It was brewed in a, a wooden barrel in Hot Springs of so and so and stuff. So, yeah, I am nowhere near as educated as that. So, you know, my scotch of choice is Gimple 12 year because it sits the nice. Middle ground of drinkability, but not outrageously expensive because um, my Australian wrestling legends skip end only go so far. Uh, yeah, I hope that answers your question, Jake. But um, I'll drink anyone if someone else pays for it. <laughs> I got one from uh, Joel Bateman. He wants to uh, your memories of wrestling the Necro Butcher. Um, it was really cool. So I'd never worked for NHBW, New Horizons Pro Wrestling, before. Uh, they were a company based in Perth, and it's run by a guy called Mana, who was a wrestler in the 90s and 2000s. And, he, you know, he worked, like, uh, across America through Philly and all that. And so he's got a lot of contacts with wrestlers of that generation. And so he sort of brought over guys like Necro Butcher and Homicide and Lowkey. And um, I had had one of his last matches before his uh, career was ended by uh, back surgery. And uh, he was hurting real bad. And uh, took care of him. He broke a precious antique Hungarian mug over the back of my head. <laughs> I got in trouble with the venue. But I think um, I, I really won favor with him. 
So it was the main event of that show was meant to be Homicide versus Necrobutcher. And uh, I don't know, Homicide couldn't come to the country. Maybe he introduced himself as Homicide at customs. They didn't let him anywhere through. But, uh, and so he headhunted me as the guy to come in and do business with the Necrobutcher because he knew of my reputation for violence and that I could survive. Uh, so I teamed up with Necro on the Friday night and then we faced off on the Saturday night. And it was wild. It was probably more than I've ever bled in a match. Like he really, really busted me open. And he bled more than I've ever bled in a match. And it was like a family show. And it was one of those ones, sometimes when you get into the nasty stuff, you really feel the crowd go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they sort of, they feed off the bloodlust. And other times there is a palpable pullback as they're like, oh, oh, I thought this shit was fake. Oh, and it was like, it was one of those deals where five rows back, you could smell the iron in the air from all the blood. Uh, so that was uh, a real experience. Um, uh, the match as a whole was probably unremarkable, but violent. Um, but as an experience, it was really something. It was probably um, some one of the most savage beatings I'd ever taken. He was, uh, you know, hit super hard, like the chops were crazy. Like I wrestled low key at the same company a few months later, and Necro's chops were more painful than um, low keys. It was uh, heinous. Um, but he was a really cool guy. Um, I learned things that night as a deathmatch wrestler and as a wrestler in general that I still put to work on a regular basis today. And um, we had some common ground because when you're like the deathmatch or the hardcore guy and you travel to new feds, often they'll put you with their hardcore guy. And it can be a real mixed bag because their hardcore guy could be an amazing wrestler who also does hardcore, or it could be some quasi-trained fuckbag who just does not care about it. And Necro Butcher had just come from Mexico where he'd worked some indie show where he just got put in the ring with three glorified backyards and it was chaos and stuff. And he had to work very hard to protect himself. And so he's going over the finish with me and he's like, you know, I'll sit you on the top and then I'll come up and I'll go for a superplex, but you push my head down, you slide over. And I'll hold on to the top. And I'm like, Necro, are you describing a sunset bomb? He's like, yes. I'm like, you know, I know how to work. Right? I'm actually a wrestler. And he's like, oh, oh Christ. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's so easy. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Sunset bomb, it's cool. Careful with the weapons. It'll be fine. Um, but it is a real mixed bag. And so I've, you know, I've wrestled with a lot of the sort of internationals who are associated with hardcore, especially of that generation. So I've wrestled Raven. I wrestled Hardcore Holly. I've wrestled Tommy Dreamer. Sabu so Crackers, did you ever... No, never got Cebu. Um, I was retired by the time he started coming out and working with BCW. So um, there was talk of a triple threat between Mad Dog, Cebu, and I, and that never came about. Uh, it was a bit the same with World Series. When they brought Abyss out, they tried to get me for that, but I was freshly retired. And I'm like, I can't come out of retirement. I told everyone I was retiring. I'll get sued like that guy who sued John Farnham. <laughs> NCW would be furious, so I, I couldn't do those gigs. But um, my my empathy for what it's like to be the hardcore guy kind of helped me with those guys, because you know no one wants hardcore holiday to be mad at you, right? You know, <laughs> he's he's not a guy that you want pissed off at you. So it meant that in dealing with him, I'm like, look, uh, sir, you know, we'll do a street fight if that's cool. Um, and look, I want. You to know,
But it's good, you know, because when you've got a right to someone like Tommy Dreamer and be all like, can we do a street fight? You don't want him to think you're some garbage guy who's going to hurt him because, you know, when you've been wrestling for 20, 30 years, you know, you want to make your money. You want to do good work. But you, you just don't want to get hurt, especially not in Australia. Uh, so I've, you know, had really good experiences with these sort of guys. And I think it's sort of my empathy for what it's like to be a hardcore guy and put in with a guy who isn't necessarily safe um, allows me to negotiate things well with these people. Australian wrestling legend, Cracker Jack. We promised a couple of years ago that we would have a part two. We've mm -hmm, done that. Mm -hmm. We very much look forward to part three. Is this another... all the questions or are we out of time? No, I think that's happened? about it, I think. That is. Oh, cool. Excellent. Um, thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Really appreciate your time. And we do look forward to seeing you at a ring at some point, whether it be in it or out of it or commentating, whatever it might be. But let's hope that that's not all too far away. Yeah, um, look, I have every intention of wrestling again, okay? It's going to happen. I don't know when. I don't know how. I don't know whether I'll be a one-legged man with forks taped to my fist and I'll just be going through the whole thing. Uh, I'll become less man and more prop as I move on. But I have every intention of wrestling again. Wherever this theme ends up on the other side of everything we're going through, it will end up better and stronger and you'll all get to come to the show tonight. It'll be better. We'll be there, mate. Thanks for your time, buddy. Look forward to catching you soon. Greg and Jack joining us here on the Turnbuckle. back the second part of on the turnbuckle the music of whose music was that we we haven't got i haven't written it down yet i was gonna wait and see whose name you got wrong later in the show all right well somebody's music just brought us into the second segment uh boys wwe extreme rules horror show yes well i thought you were back announce the interview first oh yes cracker jack He's, he's dirty because he, he was no, good. You got your name wrong. You got your no, name no, wrong. He was Tony, right. so he called, trying he, to fresh air it. He spoke about Shebeki Wrestling Association or something, so he knows who I am. <laughs> he called you Tom Konecki. Yeah, Thomas, I believe. Thomas, he did too. Thomas. Um, no, uh, he's, very... he's great. For some reason, I actually feel smarter now than what I was two hours ago. Um, well, you weren't very smart two hours ago, so yeah, that could mean anything. I feel I've learned something, <laughs> yeah. Well, we've been trying to teach you things for three years now, yeah. No, I won't learn. <laughs> and uh, he's a very, very uh, he's a wealth of information, crackers, and yeah. a funny man, he is. And it and if anyone takes nothing away from the interview and you're going to come onto the show, Zoom box and have your correct name in the bottom of it so Tony won't get your name wrong going, for, going forward. That's a good idea. Very, very good point. Crackers. Very good point. WWE Extreme Rules Horror Show. Hang on, what do we firstly, think, boys? Having the right name written in front of Tony is no guarantee he's going to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> 
It ups the chances a little bit. It ups the and, chances. And we've bit. confirmed that Bray Wyatt wasn't in the Extreme Rules Horror Show. <laughs> yes, he was. Oh, he was. Daniel Bryan was. Daniel Bryan was. So the show, it's funny because the wrestling on the show, the matches were, um, it was like four-star matches with two-star finishes or one-star finishes. Um like I really enjoyed most of the Seth Rollins versus Rey Mysterio match. I yeah. didn't enjoy the finish. I really I... enjoyed um, the Sasha Banks versus Oscar match. I didn't enjoy the finish. Um, I really enjoyed uh, the Dolph Ziggler versus Drew McIntyre match as well. Like the wrestling was good. Yeah. I think the stipulation. And where they can book themselves into a corner where, you know, the, the finishes can be, well, leading to a lot a lot of shitty finishes in the end. The the Drew and the Dolph match, I, that stipulation worked perfectly. During the match, it's told a great story back and forth. The psychology of it, it worked well. So it's frustrating. It was, a smart, it was a smart stipulation. Like what? If I was if I was in Dolph's position, that's my stipulation. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the in-ring product for WWE and the wrestlers that they do have under contract is probably the best they've ever had. It's just unfortunate they just keep booking themselves or into. Yeah, it reminds me. Of, it reminds me of watching Carlton play football at the moment, where they do everything right for three quarters, and then they just shit the bed at the end and lose. Yep, that's fair. That's hey, uh, in these unprecedented times, I think I've got a feeling that a lot of wrestling fans would have forgiven WWE if they had have gone off their normal schedule to get to where they are now. I don't think wrestling fans would expect that WWE had to run all their normal pay-per-views. And all their normal stuff. I, I think with the situation of no crowds and all that sort of stuff, promotions would have been forgiven for not doing it. And I think that's probably hurt them. The fact that they've continued to do it without crowds and all that sort of stuff. And I reckon it's hurt the product just a little bit. I mean, where it's probably hurt it the most is they're not getting the instant feedback from the crowds. Correct. But... Um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'd argue that the matches at the moment are better than they were this time last year. Yeah. Um, it's just the nonsensical. Whoever's organising the finishes of the matches. But there's no... But the that's stories where, aren't being that's told. where they're losing. Well, she, but the stories aren't being told properly either, which is really hard. Well, not necessarily. I mean, the story leading in to a lot of the matches was, was pretty good. Like, Sasha and Bailey's uh, storyline is one of the best storylines they've given to women for a long time. Um, Drew McIntyre is holding the fort really well. Dolph did a good job in this feud. I'm not opposed to the storyline that Braun Strowman and Bray Wyatt are telling. The execution's just off. Um, so yes, I just think, I, I just think it's the finishes of matches. They're, they're trying to be too clever. Yeah. Yeah, and, and definitely not having the, the crowd there. I feel like, oh, we know that Sasha and Asuka 
You're going to have a return match going forward. So trying to get out of that finish, I understand. But if that was in front of a crowd and they did it that way, the crowd would have just shit on it straight away. I, I feel you can have so a they... screwy spinach. You can have a screwy finish with a normal DQ or with yeah. Asker getting a lucky win, and you still have a return match. You don't need to do that referee spot. Like no, I, I feel like they wouldn't have called that referee spot and do it that way if there was a crowd. If yeah. you're going to have that initial crowd reaction and shit on it, because I feel that's what the crowd would have done. And where we are, look, I'm enjoying for the most part what Drew is doing, but. We don't even know if he's over as a champion because there's no crowd to, yeah, you know, collective crowd. You know, so WWE don't even know if their champion is over. Yes, they can tell some storylines during shows and everything, but there's no, there's no way to tell if he's over or not as the champion. Well, the, which is the ratings, and the ratings it's hard to judge by as well because no one's watching TV. Yeah. Uh, oh. I've been finding it a chore to watch wrestling. Like, even New Japan came back three weeks ago, which I absolutely love. It's my favourite promotion. But even then, with the no crowd, the no atmosphere, um, and it doesn't hurt New Japan as much as the American uh, promotions. And even that is just, was a chore to get through a lot of the shows. Um, and I think a lot of fans are feeling that way, and that's across the board. Mm, interesting, guys. We'll see how that uh, pans out and continues to go until they uh, they get crowds. And I'm presuming the way America's going, crowds at wrestling may not be too far away. Everything else seems to be getting a start and crowds going to different sport. In America? Yeah. Really? I haven't seen. Um, sports starting up again, a, a lot of sports starting up. Yeah, I don't yeah, know if they'll have crowds though. Yeah, okay. Um, they've they've got like a hundred thousand people a week dying of this virus. Um, yeah, and even, I'd, even be, I'd be shocked if they had crowds anytime yeah. soon. And even sport is no guarantee. Yeah, you know, no, I know the true. the soccer the soccer's come back, but the NBA is having positive tests within. No, they've had the, none. They, they've had none since they've been back in the hub. in that bubble. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Then. So hopefully that you know we got. NFL coming up in a few months' time, which I'm looking forward to, but yeah. Maybe the NBA should be running the, the US government. Well, mm. if they can keep everyone safe, it's probably a good bet. Well, it's got to be better than, uh, than what's his name? The not orange Donald. bloke? Hey? The orange bloke? No, no, not the orange bloke. The guy, Kanye West. <laughs> oh, no, no, well, poor Jeez. Kanye's. Kanye's not well. He's got some issues, hasn't he? Hey, I'm not, uh, I'm... Impact Impact Wrestling Slammiversary. Tell us all about it, boys. Well, I can't tell you all about it because I didn't watch it. But um, there was a lot of wrestlers uh, either return to Impact from a stint in the WWE or new arrivals, which was I think is going to breathe some life into the product. And from all reports, it was a very good show. Yeah, I, I watched a, a couple of the matches. Uh, not not all of it. Um, you know, some of the guys returning and some of the guys debuting. Good. You're gonna read. You're gonna say who they are, or are you just gonna gloss yeah, over? Yeah, yeah. You got well. The Motor City Machine Guns have come back, uh, reunited as a tag team, which you know, one of the great tag teams 
of the uh, modern era. Ten years. Yeah. Um, you know, Eric, Eric Young coming back, Heath Miller debuting, you know, the you, former you Heath say Heath Slater, yeah. Yeah, um, the Good Brothers, uh, Gallows and Anderson, cutting a promo. Impact's gone under the and radar. EC, but the, EC3 as well. And who, EC3 as a who's serious... Who's a big name, big name yeah, there. And a serious, like a killer, killer gimmick, um, which I feel it... You know, it's going to lead to his strengths more than just while well, posing in front of a mirror because he's got a six-pack and huge biceps. Um, Impact's been getting a little bit of buzz in the wrestling community of the people that do watch it. It's been good wrestling and good uh, storytelling. So hopefully this could get more eyes on it. Um, I'm not sure what the numbers were, but online there seems to be more people talking about Impact than usual. Yeah. Um, like on my timeline anyway so uh, it's really good to see you know another company get some buzz what do we think of Eddie yeah. Edwards as a wrestler yeah he's been great for years yeah he has yeah, has been around for ages hasn't he yeah do you even know who Eddie Edwards is Tony yes of course I do you're looking at me weird <laughs> I'm just looking at you Lyle because you're oh, lying okay. in that bed with your legs spread. That's the only reason I'm looking at you. No, my legs aren't spread, mate. I just saw your leg raised up. I don't know what you're doing. I was doing a hip flexor because my hips are tight. Can you do it after we finish recording, please? Uh, moving on. South Australian wrestling looks like it could be back up and running. Yes, you got Wright City uh, Wrestling running in August and uh, Rampage running at the end of July. They're both, both sold, sold out. Sold out. Yeah, both sold out earlier this week. That's great. You know, I could imagine, well, <laughs> a long way off for Melbourne having any wrestling, but tickets will go. We're not even allowed to go to the shops. No. <laughs> Unless you've got to go to buy a mask or something, I guess. Um, so that's good. It's, you know, a little bit jealous. Right. Um, for another state that they can go to see live wrestling and the guys at Guys and girls that did get tickets, yeah, congratulations. Hope, hopefully Rampage will put that live on um, online. And I know that um, over in New Zealand, SPW are running the Southern Rumble as well in a couple of weeks. So yeah. hoping to have someone from there on the show next week. We were hoping to go to that, weren't we, this year? Yeah, we were. <laughs> they, they weren't going to run it this year. Uh, he was going to have a year off. Yeah, um, no. we're going to go next year. That's I think another one. Yeah, plans change. Uh, he can't Another. wrestle. <laughs> hey, uh, now I believe an Australian wrestling podcast was nearly cancelled by WWE UK by one of their wrestlers during the week. What happened there? What do you mean, one of Australia's wrestling podcasts? That was oh, sorry, um, Australia's premier wrestling podcast. Yeah, it was us. We... Oh, yes. Uh, I, I, what I like, happened? You almost got cancelled. <laughs> I, I, like, I like how well she keeps throwing out these we's and the us, Tony. Lyle, can you <laughs> yeah. explain what happened, please? Because I know I'm not going to get the well, hang on. Let me, let me explain because it was a very funny tweet. Um, Australian, Australian wrestler Sean Custom has been posting some, I guess you'd call them extreme right wing anti-mask posts on his Instagram page. Yeah. S similar 
to that from Pete Evans. So I tweeted crazy that Sean Custom's running with a Chef Pete Evans gimmick. It was I thought it was funny. It it was an extremely funny tweet. And it was So what happened off the back of that? It was extremely well, vague. Well, I got lots of likes. <laughs> got lots of likes and people messaged me to congratulate me on it who didn't want to like it publicly. Um, <laughs> and then and then Zaya Brookside quote tweeted it and um, accused us of bullying. Yep. Bullying uh, who? So, Sean Custom. Sean Custom. Why? How? I'm not sure. Maybe, or Pete Evans. I'm not sure which one we were bullying. Well, he, but, yeah, Pete um, Evans has... Uh, felt the brunt of the public lately so but, um yeah it was the i've I got to say some when someone with like 30 40,000 followers on twitter accuses you of something my how are you feeling Welshy? well i was drunk at the time not at 10 o'clock in the morning the tweet. no no the tweet i wasn't drunk it was when when the retweet happened i was in bed and um yeah i, I was scrambling a bit but Thankfully, you were shitting quickly. yourself. Yeah, I was. I was shitting myself. But thankfully, the the public sentiment was supportive of us, including several wrestlers. Jeez, um, Eric Stevens especially. Um, so we she ended up deleting it, and uh, there was an apology tweet and all. But yeah, yeah. I believe and, um, Zach Saber Junior even put a word in for us. He didn't know. No, Zach's been quiet on Twitter. Jones did. Um, Jonesy. The, uh, but yeah, but, but... when Lyle just, well, I told Lyle about it, then he just went to sleep. There was no way I was getting to sleep. Well, listen, I, I could feel the anxiety building in Welshie, and I didn't want any of that. So I just went to sleep. I slept my anxiety off, and I was like, oh, I'll see, it's either going to be good or bad in the morning. I don't want to live through the unknown. I'll sleep it off. I woke up and it was... I didn't have I the just, heart to tell Tony because Tony gave just, me a lecture. Well, you did tell me the next day and I was just about to walk no, into a meeting with my psychologist. Like three days later. I was just about to walk into a meeting with my psychologist and then all of a sudden you dumped me. The WWE UK nearly cancelled us. You can expect that the uh, conversation went in a different way with her. Yeah. And the well, fact you, that you were trying to warn her... You've given me a lecture. You gave me a lecture the day before. About Twitter, <laughs> and that's why I didn't want to tell you. I thought I was going to get in trouble. Oh, God. <laughs> no, well, learn from your lessons. No, uh, no, nah, nah, I'll tweet something nah, else this yeah, week. Do that exactly. It was a sick tweet. It was a fire tweet. Don't worry about that. You are a bully. Uh, AEW fight for the fallen. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, yeah. Well, that was on. That was something that happened. Yeah, that that was that was that was on. Yeah, um, and that's it. Yeah, no, it was it was on. No, it was, it was actually was pretty good. It was it was actually really good. Um, really. What, good. what do you think of Jericho's uh, interviews? Now he's talking about the demographics and and the. I, uh, I just want the payoff to be, in a few months' time, Jericho is going to be outside that demographic. Yeah. And I want to know where it goes once Jericho yeah, yeah. Hits, oh, good, good. hits that age. He's he's going to be over fifty very soon. Yeah, I want to know. I want to pay off of Jericho then to turn his back on the demographic, and then this will be all worth it. Yeah, the demo um, god. Yeah, I look. I, I don't. 
I'm not I'm not a big fan of of the promos talking about the graphic of the demographic. But if yeah. it's going somewhere like that, I think it'll be it'll be actually pretty funny. But they're they're producing their last three weeks have been really good. NXT's last three weeks have been really good. Um so you know, I know that it's hard to watch wrestling sometimes, we keep saying, but there's actually some pretty good content at the moment. Yeah. Well, that, that, like the previous week on Dynamite, that bell to bell in most of the matches was, was great. And same as NXT at, at the same point. You know, you, there's some matches there that are actually really good to, to great. And it's like, oh, if there was just a crowd here, it would take it to the next level. Um, you know, like you're getting pay-per-view worthy matches on a uh, well Thursday Thursday for us. Um, interesting. They're going to keep Brian Cage strong by having the towel thrown in and not getting a clean, a clean he, loss. He's a mid Carter anyway. Yeah. Can I, tell you, so, can I tell you that I've only seen one match and it's because I love the Lucha Brothers and that Lucha Brothers FTR tag team match was pretty good. That was. Yeah. A lot of boxers. That was... That was really good. So, you know, and the post-match stuff with uh, Omega and the beers being tipped on him and then FTR not being able to start their own truck. Actually, I nearly go as far as saying those two are probably the best tag teams in professional wrestling at the moment. Well, the Lucha Brothers are definitely up there. Uh, I don't think we've seen enough of this incarnation of FTR, of what they're going to do in AEW. Tex Harwood's one of the good tag teams at the moment, too. Yeah, so, you know, you know, Hangman and Page, which are great. The Young Hangman Bucks. Page. Hey? You said Hangman and Page. Oh, sorry. Hangman and Omega. Uh, the Young Bucks, which uh, they can be tolerant. Okay, yeah, sorry, mate. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> and the Jurassic Express are doing some really good things. So I know they're trying to build up Jungle Boy to take that next step in the singles stuff, which is good. He seems like he's got a good future, but you're onto something there, Tony. I like your tag team wrestling uh, thoughts. I just know I like lucha wrestlers, and that's why I'm I'm really into the lucha brothers. And uh, yeah, that, I just had to see that match, and it was good. It was good. Uh, now we've oh, we started have, something news. I forgot to put on. I've got to put something on there, Tony. What's that? Uh, two things actually. Firstly, Indy Hartwell won her first match. Ah, yes, Indy Hartwell. Yeah, no, no help, help as well. No, no help. help. Very clean. Perfect. Clean as a whistle. Yeah, no, no help at all. And secondly, a follow-up. Have World Series Wrestling and made any announcements on the back of our tweets asking what's going on with their shows for November? They did reply. Um, and we expect an announcement later this week. So we will wait and see what that is. But they did also say that if anyone would like a refund... You are more than welcome to go back to your place of purchase and get that. Yeah, I've got no idea where that is. So they should probably be announcing where that place of purchase is because it's their partnership. But anyway, um, look, we should know something by the end of the week. All right. So hopefully on next week's show, we can do that. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I read out a, uh, a card of an old uh, wrestling show from the you, States. Well, you, butchered, you butchered a card. Yeah, Butcher. Burn Cagney, I think, was on it. So I've got another one to read out this week. Okay. And uh, this was from a, a, a 
oh, gee whiz, I reckon this is probably about maybe 25 to 30 years ago, maybe even more. It's more it's longer. It's yeah, more. it'd be maybe 35 <laughs> years ago. Uh, wrestling at the New Haven Coliseum. And the main event was, of course, Jimmy Superfy Snooker. Oh, faster, Tony. We need mistakes. Up against Ray the Crippler Stevens. Pedro Morales. <laughs> what? The fact that it's a tag team match, Tony. Oh, sorry. I thought it was. Yeah. It was too. <laughs> Jimmy Snooker and Pedro Morales up against Ray the Crippler Stevens and Captain Lou Albano. Uh, Ivan right. Putski up against Playboy <laughs> Buddy Rose. Rocky Johnson Husky. up against Husky. Mr. Seattle. Jules Sombo. <laughs> the A oh. and the I are the other way around, Tony. Hey, Mr. Saito. Oh, Saito, sorry, not Seattle. Uh, Jules Strongbow up against Swede Hanson. Hanson? It, ha- it looks like Hanson on my copy. <laughs> Uh, Kurt Henning, Tiger Mask, and Eddie Gilbert also mm-hmm. wrestling on the card. Well, you've done better than last time, but... Didn't we interview Tiger Mask a couple of weeks ago? Which one? Rocky Romero? Well, it's a while ago. But no, yeah. He was never Tiger Mask. <laughs> was he? You said Rocky R- Romero. You got that right. Yeah. Uh I thought he was Tiger Mask. What was he? He he wore a mask. What was he? Al Luchador. Okay. What? Al Luchador. That's his um, other gimmick. Yeah, there you go. Okay, okay. Fa- so anyway, that was that card. Apologies to everyone that I didn't stuff as much as stuff it up as much as you would have liked me to. He was Black Tiger, by the way. Hey? <laughs> he was the Black Tiger. Uh, Friday, July the 24th, wrestling coming up around Australia. Wrestle Rampage re-emerging is on in Adelaide with Rat Daddy defending his Australian National Championship. Against? No idea. Hasn't been announced. Thank you, guys. But it's good to have a show on. It is great to have a show on. Next week, we'll have another one on. Who have we got? I don't look that far in advance. All right. Maybe that's why we didn't have a show last week then. Oh, no, no, no. I'm talking. I'm, talk- I'm hoping to get someone from SPW in New Zealand on. So we're having a chat to them at the moment. Cracker Jack said we who. should get Mad Dog on for a chat. We should try and get do that. I agree. I don't have Mad Dog's number. Well, we'll get in touch with Cracker Jack and get him to organise it. And he doesn't believe in social media. Maybe he could be our booker, Cracker Jack. Sounds good to me. Yeah, all right. Uh, because he knows me so well, I'm sure he'll respond. Catch you next week, boys. And catch you next week, folks. Thanks for joining us again right here on The Turnbuckle.